scripture. Today's passage comes from Exodus 25, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. You may be seated. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. I hope uh, that everyone had their their usual Thanksgiving traditions this year. I know that uh, uh, I, for one, ate uh, multiple times much more than I should have, uh, which is a delight. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, there's. I know that some of you have another tradition that I just want to tell you. I'm not sure if it's healthy. Some people get up just insanely early the next morning to go shopping, and I just I just don't know what that says about us with a focus on materialism and, and the need for things, and and I just really think that we should really examine that practice. So I was standing at Menards at 5.30 in the morning on Friday. <laughs> and uh, uh, as, as all of us do when we're alone in a line, I, uh, I either tried to join or, or listen to the conversations of the people around me. And I'd like to say I'm such a good person. I'm intentional about not overhearing conversations but I can't. So um, I had headphones in, and I caught tidbits, and so I turned them off because it sounded like a really interesting conversation happening behind me. I, I've, I've, I've asked forgiveness, and the Lord was okay with it. So um, what was interesting uh, in that conversation was that a, a, a woman was talking about how wonderful it had been to meet her son's fiance over or during Thanksgiving. And, and I couldn't catch all of it because she was very inconsiderate. She kept, like, turning around to face her friends sometimes. And so I, I, I had to fill in with context clues. Asking her what she said seemed like it was one step maybe a little bit too far. But from what I could gather, she was very excited to meet her son's fiancé. But at the beginning of that process, or at the beginning of finding out that her son's fiance was coming, she, she felt like it was a thing being done out of duty. You know, there was some traveling involved, and so she tried to discourage it at first because she didn't want her to be inconvenienced. And then what was, what was so neat, and it clicked with me about this morning as well, is that what she said to her friend was, uh, she told me she just wanted to know me. And I thought that that was really neat. Uh, a young woman uh, wanting to, to go to such lengths to know the woman that was, was going to be her mother-in-law. We're going to talk about God today and his desire, his wonderful desire to be known. This is the last sermon in a series going through the book of Exodus, and we've called it Following the Invisible God. And the reason for that is because each week we've seen that in the book of Exodus, there's these stories of these tremendous acts of God. And we can just read the stories and be affirmed that we do indeed worship a great and powerful 
Lord. But there's something more than that going on. If we just let them stay there, just stories about God's power, we miss something because every single one of those stories is God sharing a part of himself with his people. And that's preserved for us to still read and encounter and be blessed with today. Now, I I had thought about just trying to go through those themes again, but there have been 12 of them, and I have leftovers to eat just like you do, so we we won't go through the 12 that we've gone before. I want to focus instead on this new one, and this new one that I think is just remarkably important and wonderful and special. I think it's the engine behind God's desire to create the the story of relationship that runs throughout Scripture, His, his willingness and passion and effort to rescue us despite our fallenness. It's this desire God has to be known. And that's our our sermon summary today. It's this. It's that God invites you to know him. God invites you to know him. When we think about knowing a person or knowing a thing, a couple of different things come to mind, right? We say, I know that two plus two equals four. And that's one kind of knowing, right? We know information. And part of our connection to God is that way. There are certain things that we know about him. There are doctrines and beliefs that are important for us to know and be aware of. To know who Jesus is as the Son of God who invites us into fellowship. That's important, but the most important part, or, or you could say that's not complete without that other part of knowing. When I say I know a friend, I know a loved one, I know my family. There's a relational knowing that's not the same. It's richer and it's deeper. It doesn't mean I know absolutely everything about someone when I say that I know them. It means that there's a connection, a relationship that happens. A shared experience, a willingness on both parts to be open and to be understood. And that's what we're we're diving in today is, is God's invitation for us to know not just about him, but to know him personally. So we're in, uh, we're in the book of Exodus, right? And so the, the background here on the Israelites knowing God up to this point. They've been in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. But the stories that they had, the, they've had these stories about the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? They, they knew God from the book of Genesis, from those stories. We know that God's people knew him as El Shaddai which means God Almighty, or a God among gods, or the chief God. And then early in the book of Exodus, we find out that there's this, this, this great revelation that's given to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, where, where God says his name, Yahweh, I am that I am. In other words, God reveals about himself that he's not just a God greater than all other gods, but he's the very principle and sustainer of existence itself, that every single thing comes from and relies on him. 
He is being, you could say. And soon, they're going to know him not only as this powerful God who creates and sustains, not only is this God greater than any other God, not only is the God of their ancestors, but is a God who wants to be known by them. So I want to talk today about the tabernacle. We don't, we don't do that a whole lot. And one of the reasons for that is when you get into Exodus chapter 25, when the tabernacle is starting to be talked about, what you have for most of the next 15 chapters are a lot of descriptions about how it's supposed to be built and then the process itself of building it. And I have to be honest, it is perfectly okay if you have this problem, because I do too. I cannot say that those bits are thrilling reading. It can be very hard. And there's, 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 there's sparks scattered through, right? The, the golden calf story is in the middle of that. The story where Moses is, is put into the cleft of, of a rock face and God passes by. It's in the middle of that too, but... Aside from that, there's lots about the type of wood and the, the, the size of, of gemstones and, and how many of this and how much of that. And it's, it's difficult to, to be enthralled by it. But the purpose of the tabernacle, I think we can be captured by. He says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. The tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting because it's where God's people came and met him. Specifically, it's where Moses came and met with God and they spoke together. And this tabernacle, in some ways, it's a lot like other ancient temples for gods. But, but there are a few ways in which it's very, very different. The tabernacle's unique in two ways. First... It's a place where heaven overlaps with earth. In the Bible, heaven is wherever God is. And remember, we can, we can fall into this trap of thinking that he's far away, but never in Scripture are we given a picture of a God who stays far away. He's present. And the whole, part, or the whole, whole point of the tabernacle was to provide a, a physical manifestation, a, a sacred space where God was present among his people. And it's not just about the God being present. For us, we know, again, heaven is where God is. And so it's this place where heaven and earth, they, they overlap. They come together. You're in, a, you're in a place where you have your one foot on earth and one foot in heaven when you're in the tabernacle. And that theme is going to run all the way through Scripture. We'll pick back up on it in a bit. A second way that the tabernacle is different, the second way is that it's not stationary. You see, a temple, and even the temple that's later built, is a thing that's supposed to stay put. It's a thing that, that doesn't Move And if it does move, something's usually very, very wrong. The point of the tabernacle is actually that God will travel with his people. He'll go with them. You remember one of the tragedies of the golden calf is that God's people stood at the base of a mountain. And they didn't want a God who was above them. They wanted a God who was among them. And if only they'd have waited, 
they'd have seen that that was God's desire and plan the whole time, that he would never be far away from them. He would be a God that would be with and among and go with his people. God wants to be known, and part of being known is proximity. Now, this this idea that God wants to be known, everything, every single thing in the tabernacle shows that to be true, proves that point. I want to go through some of the the pieces of the tabernacle. Again, if you're not someone who's riveted by those those last chapters in the book of Exodus, you may not be able to piece it together. To To be honest, I had to spend quite a bit of time to familiarize myself again with the parts of the tabernacle. And it was a refreshing thing, a delightful thing, because there's so much rich meaning in every part of it. Uh, We're not going to go through each piece, but we're going to go through several of them. First, we have a picture of the tabernacle itself. And you see see the outside of the courtyard, there's this fence. and, And on one part of the fence, there's an entrance. And it might be weird to think about the entrance to a courtyard having a deep meaning, but it absolutely does. Because it's not just that God is going to be present. There's something on your part required for you to be with him. For you to draw near to him. He's there. The tabernacle makes him available. But God's people have to choose to enter the courtyard. And that's absolutely necessary for a relationship to be there. Both people have to be willing. That entrance to the courtyard means that God wants a two-way relationship with you. He wants you to want him as he desires you. You have to make a decision to enter. And then there's a, a bronze altar right after you come inside. There's this large bronze altar. And the, the bronze altar was this beautiful, I think until it had been used quite a bit, this beautiful ornament or, or, or functioning thing that was used for where they would put animals on for sacrifices. You can see the next picture. Right? They would actually bring animals to be burnt there, to give burnt offerings to atone for sin. Because the, the thing of it is that a holy God and a sinful people, they cannot coexist without grace. The, the holy God has to forgive the sin. And the burnt offerings were the way that God's people were reminded over and over and over again that there's a cost for sin, that the wages of sin are death. And it's right as you enter. You enter into the courtyards and you're confronted with the need to atone for sin. But it's a need that's been provided for by God. He has made a way. His holiness, in, in a way, is an obstacle for them being able to come near to Him, and He's made a way for atonement to happen. And I want you to notice something else. You notice the rings on the side of the altar. We're going to talk about those later, but those rings on the side of the altar are important. The next piece of the tabernacle is the lampstand, also called a menorah. And it's designed to look like a tree, right? It goes back in meaning, metaphor to the tree of life. But the, the menorah represented 
the, well, it was the only light inside of the tabernacle, right? Thick curtains surround every part of the tabernacle, and the only light provided is from this. And it represented that everything God's people have, they receive from him, that he is the light in the darkness. He guides their way and their path. He's their light. Next, we have the table of the showbread. Now, this was a, a table, and all of these are made of gold, which is just remarkable for the time, or at least covered in gold. And on top of this table are 12 loaves of bread, and those loaves signify the 12 tribes of God's people. They're brought inside of his temple or his tabernacle. And more than that, the priests, they would actually eat these loaves. These loaves were for them. In a real way, God provided sustenance for his people. They, they fed what God gave him. And I want you to notice also the rings on the side of the table. Next is an altar of incense. You know about the altar of incense, perhaps, from, from the story in Luke 1 with the father of John the Baptist. But this is the place where, where the prayers of God's people are constantly going up to him. Of course, that's not what's happening literally in the smoke, but that's what it represents. This is a God who is always listening, a God who always receives the prayers of his people. He's not a God who turns away. He's not a God who gets temperamental and leaves. He's a God who's always there. And then you'll notice behind it, there's this curtain, this veil. And the veil separates the holy place, where we've been describing from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it represented, again, that issue of, of an unholy or an imperfect or a sin-tainted person interacting with the very presence of God because God himself dwelled inside of that most holy place. And that veil was a thick, thick curtain which separated him from them. And then inside of that veil, we see the, the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant, this incredible large chest, again, covered in gold, with angels pictured atop it, and God's presence would dwell in the middle of it. He would literally be there. He would really, truly, in a physical way, be present. Can you imagine being around that tent with the knowledge that God is literally right inside there. Can you imagine the security and encouragement and conviction that that would cause? Can you imagine the closeness that you would feel that this is a God who every time you set up, he's really, truly there? This is a God who wants to be known. This is a God who invites his people into relationship with him. And if you need more convincing that God wants to be known, that God makes a way for his people to know who he is, to have fellowship and relationship with him, then you have to look no further than the fulfillment of the tabernacle. The fulfillment of these stories of the book of Exodus. We don't have to look any further 
than Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John 1.14. That word dwelling is tabernacle. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. In other words, the Apostle John is saying, do you want a picture for what it looks like? When Jesus comes to his people, do you want a symbol that makes sense, that you're already familiar with and aware of? Do you want to know what Jesus is like? Jesus is like the tabernacle. Jesus is this physical presence of God among his people. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap because in Jesus, God is really and truly and powerfully present. And you can imagine being a Jew and hearing, reading that that verse and thinking back to the tabernacle. You think back to the entrance of the courtyard and you realize that you have a choice. You can accept Jesus or not. He desires a relationship with you, but he waits for your consent. We have to accept the gift that he offers us of relationship, of salvation, of eternity, of community. We have to accept him as Lord and Savior. And you think about the bronze altar outside of the tent, and you realize that Jesus is the provision for our sins. He is the sacrifice that that altar was pointing to all the time. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that never were those sacrifices in the Old Testament actually taking care of sin. They were, they were pointing forward to the moment when a real, true, worthy, perfect sacrifice would come. Someone who could take away the sins of God's people. You think about the lampstand and then you hear the statement that Jesus is the light of the world in an entirely new way. That lampstand that was the only light within the tent. Jesus is the only light that we have. He is the only way that we know to follow, to live. The table of the showbread. Can you think of anything that Jesus did or encouraged us to do It involves a table and some bread and his sustaining God's people. The altar of incense, this promise that he always hears, but the New Testament makes that so much richer. Jesus says, I am with you always. He says, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm there. And here's what I think he means by that. I think he means he's really there. You may not be able to see him when you close your eyes or or don't close your eyes, but when you step into God's throne room to pray, Jesus is really, truly there. He is never far from you in your, your greatest, happiest victory to your harshest struggle. 
the time when you feel on the mountaintop and in the lowest valley, Jesus is present always. He's never far away. The veil. We know the story, right? The, the, the thing that separated God's people from the holy of holies, that most holy place. When Jesus died, what happened? It tore. It split in two. Can you imagine knowing that story and, and all of a sudden, John says that Jesus is our tabernacle and the, the meaning would become just remarkably clear. The veil was torn because we have access to God in a way we never have before. And then, of course, the Holy of Holies itself. The very presence of God. Something that, that the Israelites, in their best moments, were able to look over and see God is there in that tent. Something new happens. Something so much better than a tabernacle or a temple happens. In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is that moment just before Peter gets up to preach that powerful sermon. It's the moment known as the birth of the church. When God himself came to dwell within, not a, not a tent, not a building. Not even coming in a special way as the incarnation, as Jesus Christ, but came to dwell within each member of his people. You remember that idea that wherever God is, is heaven, right? And so heaven and earth overlap. They, 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 they lock hands in the tabernacle. They lock hands in the temple. They're, they're both present in Jesus, and they're both present in you. God himself dwells within you. The Bible is a story of God showing his desire to be known, his invitation to his people advancing from tabernacle to temple to Jesus to you and I. He's present here. He's present among us. He's present within us. So in this series, we've been looking at this, this invisible God. Moses was known for following him. That's what Hebrews 11 says about Moses. He was known for following the invisible God. And we've seen that while we can't look around and see God at work, we have present in the pages of this book, story after story of God acting in a way that tells us who he is. I may not be able to look and see God's love as a, as a, as a visible thing, but I can read and hear and know that God's love is real and fierce and true as it was then, it is today. Because God does not change. 
And this is a God, he doesn't sit stationary, though, in the pages of the Bible. We talk about encountering him here, and we should. If you don't have a habit of reading scripture, let me encourage you again. It's so important. The Bible reading plans are a great way to dive in because God wants you to know him, and you can't do that without meeting him here. But it has to go beyond that, too. As we pray, we step into his throne room. As we serve, we actually become part or function as part of his body. Not just a body like a group, but the actual body of Jesus reaching out to show love to the people around us. This opportunity that we have with Threads Hope and Love on December 8th is exciting. It's a chance to be exactly that, the hands of Jesus, to reach out and show love to people in need. That's part of knowing him too. He doesn't sit stationary in the pages of the Bible. He's real, he's present, and he wants you to know him. And so, I think I want to conclude this series with this. The tabernacle ends, the book of Exodus ends with the details of the tabernacle. And, and, and while it seems like it's a statement, here's what God's people did, I think it's more of a question. Because as you read the book of Exodus and you close it, there's this story of a God who's present among his people, a God who's come, a God who invites, a God who wants to be known. So the question I think we're left with is we have this God who wants us to know him, who knows that that's what we need, knows how that's how we'll become the people we were always meant to become. He's there, he's present. He's waiting. What are you going to do about that? Father God, we come before you so thankful for blessings. We thank you for this book of Exodus, this powerful and rich story of you introducing yourself to your people, of you reaching out in showing that you are a God who saves, a God who protects, a God who provides, a God who is greater than anything we could ever imagine, who is capable both of great, powerful, overwhelming works, and at the same time caring about the smallest parts of our lives. And we thank you that the story doesn't end there, that the Bible speaks that testimony as a whole that you are God. You are the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. You are the uncreated one. And yet, in all of your greatness, you do not forget us. Part of your greatness, Lord, is that you are love and you care for each and every one of us. You weep when we weep and rejoice when we rejoice and desire to know, for us to know you. Because, Lord, you see our, our, our worst parts. You see our, our most difficult and shameful traits and moments. And your word says over and over again, you look at the worst of us and you smile because your love isn't canceled out 
by our inadequacy or insufficiency. Your love is greater than them. We cannot be so bad that you stop to love us. You stop loving us. God, you are. You are good. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to remember that goodness, to remember your love, to remember your invitation to know you more deeply and to every day make the decision to walk through the courtyard gates and to meet with you again and again and again. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.